Good morning. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, like Justin said, my name is Isaac Whitney, and I serve as one of the pastoral assistants at Christ Church Westchester. Uh, I'm also bringing greetings from Richie Chen. Uh, perhaps some of you have had the pleasure of getting to meet her. Uh, she's one of your new missions partners, and she is one of our new uh, staff uh, members, and she has been doing a, a great job, and it's been, it's been great having her on staff as she's uh, training and preparing for uh, the mission field uh, with our church. Um, before we begin, I'd encourage you to uh, have a Bible open to the passage that was uh, just read so you can refer to it. Uh, and then uh, before we study God's word together, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we are in awe of your majesty and your splendor, uh, yet we are also uh, in awe that you are a God who speaks to us, that you're a God who has given us your word. Uh, Lord, this word, uh, we confess, gives life, and it's by this word that we are made new, and so we ask that you would prepare our hearts to learn from it this morning, that by it you might continue to make us new, to help us to throw off sin and to put on Christ, after whose image you are making us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your idea of a good ruler? Throughout the ages, our world has had uh, different ideas about what makes a good king or emperor or president. At some times, the world has valued physical strength and might. At other times, it's been an abundance of wealth. At other times, it's been military acumen so that he can uh, expand the empire. At other times, uh, people have valued uh, intelligence, a knack for uh, diplomacy, respectability, uh, some people want leaders who take a step back and allow uh, the people to make their own decisions. Uh, others want rulers who instill law and order with authority. Others want their leaders to punish their enemies. But all this to say is our, our world has, has had and uh, continues to have many uh, visions of what makes a great ruler, uh, of the kind of person that they would like to entrust their lives to. But I wonder how many have imagined a shepherd as the ideal king. Our passage today is a passage that deals with the world's and the people of Israel's expectations for an ideal king, and also God's vision for an ideal king. It also shows us a confrontation between the kind of person that God's people wanted to lead them and fight their battles and the kind of person that the Lord wanted to rule over his kingdom and his people. This story in 1 Samuel 16 comes right after God rejects Israel's first king, uh, Saul, as the ruler over Israel. Uh, Saul's reign had, had really uh, been bad even before it began. In chapters 8 through 10, even though he appears to be the kind of person that we would want to be king, he is presented as being foolish, as unwilling, as incapable. Uh, but most importantly, he is presented as being disobedient. He doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. In chapters 13 and 14, he makes an unauthorized offering and later a foolish vow. And then in chapter 15, Saul disobeys the Lord again. And so God tells him through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom has been uh, torn from him 
and given to one of his neighbors. And so here in chapter 16, we meet that neighbor for the first time. So in 1 Samuel 16, we come to a a very pivotal moment. So there's a lot of uh, tension and excitement and anxiety that are all mixed together. You see, God's people, uh, Israel, have been given a king, but this king has not turned out the way that we would hope. It turns out that far from being the obedient royal that we were hoping for, he, just like, like everyone else that we have seen so far, is a rebel against the Lord. And so God has rejected him as being king. So this brings us to a very pivotal moment in Israel's history where the throne of the kingdom appears to hang in the balance. The first king has been rejected. Will God provide another? So in the story this morning, we will see uh, that God has, in fact, provided for himself another. But it's not the kind that we would expect This insight uh, from our text today leads us to this main exhortation that will frame our time this morning. Follow God's obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. Follow God's obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. Uh, And if you're uh, taking notes, this main exhortation will be informed by uh, two stages of this story. First, uh, a tale of two kings. And second, the unlikely king. Uh, So first, a tale of two kings. Uh, Let's read again verses one through five. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve for over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. One way that we can think about the story of 1 Samuel as a whole is by seeing it as a tale of two kings. From the people's requesting a king in chapter 8, to Saul's anointing in chapter 10, to his replacement in David, to Saul's desperation to keep the throne from David, 1 Samuel gives us a drama between these two figures. But behind this tale of two kings, the Bible gives us two visions for two different kinds of kings. There is the world's vision for the ideal king, which is marked by worldly pictures of might and power and wealth. And then there is God's picture of the ideal king, which is identified as obedience to God and his word. And so to, to see how these two visions inform the tale of the two kings in 1 Samuel, uh, I invite you to turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. So here in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is uh, giving the people of Israel God's law a second time before entering the promised land. 
Uh, and then here in chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, Moses gives a forecast of what the people will ask for when they are established in the land. So Deuteronomy 17, starting verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself gold and excessive uh, silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So when the people enter into the promised land, uh, he is making uh, this people into a special nation, uh, unlike all the other nations, and is using them for his plan of salvation. And what makes this nation unlike any other nation on earth is that the Lord God is the ultimate king, judge, and ruler over this chosen people. But God ultimately desires to exercise this rule through a chosen king over this holy nation. Uh, so the idea of a king itself is not what's wrong. Uh, what's wrong is the kind of king that Moses says the people will want. The people will look around at the formidable nations and they'll see uh, tall and mighty kings. They'll see conquering warriors. They'll see grand armies. They'll see these things among the nations and they will say, uh, if that's what we want. We want a strong man who will fight our battles. But in desiring this, they'll actually reject Yahweh's rule because they're forgetting that it's Yahweh who fights their battles. This vision that God wants for his kingdom is something entirely distinct from the nations. He ultimately wants a king who is obedient to his word. What brings God's people flourishing is not the ruler that looks mighty by earthly standards, but the one whose heart is in submission to the Lord. And so these are uh, the two visions of the two kinds of kings that help inform the setting of our passage. And so now, uh, with this in mind, I invite you to turn back with me to 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 8. Uh, and then here in chapter 8, we actually see a near a pic picture-perfect fulfillment of what Moses predicted in the passage we just read in Deuteronomy. So 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4, says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. And appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then now skipping down to verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go man, every, every man to his city. So just as Moses had said, the people of Israel who up to this point have uh, been enduring cycles of war and battles and oppressions with their enemies have have looked out to the nations and they've decided that that they've wanted someone with worldly symbols of might and power to fight their battles. And so in terms of the two visions of the two kinds of kings that they might have over them, they have not chosen the kind that is obedient to the Lord the kind that looks just like all the nations around them. And so this is the kind that they end up with. Drop with me uh, down to the next verse in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 9, verse 1. which says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than, than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Israel's first king, Saul, is the picture of the exact kind of person the nations would want leading them. He's a man who comes from wealth. He is physically domineering, head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He's the exact kind of person that someone in Israel's day would expect to be the best kind of warrior and the best kind of king. But Saul is the kind of king the nations desire and not the kind of king that God desires. Saul doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. He doesn't obey the commandments of the law. He's a man of folly. He's not a man after God's own heart. He's a man who longs for his own power, his own prestige, his own influence. And we see this in our own text this morning in chapter 16, verse 2. which says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Saul, when the kingdom is taken from him in chapter 15, re- reveals the kind of leader he is both in this passage and throughout the rest of the book. He's the one who desires his position for his own advantage and will resort to violence to keep it. So the narrative of 1 Samuel 16 has set us up for this moment where the king who is strong and mighty according to the standards of the world has been condemned and rejected in favor of another kind of king. So chapter 16 verses 1 through 5 gives us a decisive pivot from Saul to another king that God has chosen. In verse 1, right after telling uh, Saul the Lord has rejected him, Samuel barely has time to go home before he's commissioned to anoint the next king. So the main point of of this section of the narrative in verses 1 through 5 is that the old king is being left behind in favor of the new king. 
the rejection of the first has been decisive, the choosing of the second is immediately taking place. The failure and disobedience and rebellion of the first king is a tragedy, but Samuel, along with the reader, is given no time to grieve over this failure. We're given no time to wonder if God has a plan for his kingdom. As soon as Saul's kingship is rejected, we are assured that God has provided for himself a king. But this king is not everything that one might expect him to be. And that leads us to the second portion of this narrative, the unlikely king. Let's read verses 6 through 13 again. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel has arrived in Bethlehem and has gathered Jesse and his sons to anoint one of them as king at God's choosing. Uh, But we quickly learn that whatever expectation Samuel or or anyone might have had about Saul's replacement uh, must be adjusted. In verse 6, when the prophet looks on the first of Jesse's sons, he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Whatever kind of reasoning Samuel might have been using uh, is revealed by God's response in verse 7. Do not look upon his appearance or the heights of his stature because I have rejected him. In other words, God is saying that the king of God's people is not to be evaluated by worldly standards. God has no need to rule through uh, a leader with worldly conceptions of might and power. In fact, the king that God has just rejected had, had all of that and more. Recall what we read earlier, that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was the most handsome person in Israel. But we see how his, his rule turned out. So the point is not that outward beauty or strength are bad in and of themselves. Okay, God is not opposed to tall people. Uh, the point is that uh, while Israel wants a king who is like the nations, God wants a king who is after his own heart. The human heart makes it so that Israel is prone to evaluate their leader by worldly standards. But God's heart evaluates the king of his people by his obedience. So this leads into the Lord's next words in in verse 7 where he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Okay, God is is not like mankind. He does not value or need the same things as man. He doesn't need 
a mighty king like the nations in order to establish his kingdom. The next he concludes in verse 7 that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And so this statement confirms that he has no need for the king of his people to possess worldly might or worldly power. He desires the king to be a man after his own heart, to be one who is obedient to his commandments, who delights in his law, who leads the people without regard for his own advantage, and who seeks the Lord's glory above all else. And so this priority of the heart over worldly pictures of strength and stature leads to the selection of an unlikely candidate for king. In fact, he's unexpected to the point where no one thinks to stop and say, hey, maybe we should go get the other brother. He doesn't seem at this point to have the worldly advantage of Eliab in having some level of magnificent stature or strength. He doesn't have the advantage of being the firstborn or the secondborn or even the seventhborn. But what he is is an obedient servant of the Lord, a man after his own heart. And Samuel says uh, back in chapter 13, verse 14, speaking to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So David is not the first person we would expect to be chosen as king. He doesn't have the same qualities the world would expect to have in their king, unlike Saul or unlike some of his brothers. But also unlike Saul, he is a humble servant who's obedient to the Lord's commands. And also unlike Saul, he is faithful over what his father has entrusted to him. So uh, if you have your Bible, if you turn with me briefly back to 1 Samuel 9, where we'll look at verses 3 and 4. So we don't have time to read the entire accounts of Saul's anointing, but I want to give you a picture of what, of what Saul is doing when he's first anointed as king. Uh, so keep in mind that this is the context in which Saul is anointed. First uh, Samuel 9, 3, and 4. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of these young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. They passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. So now turn with me back in, in our passage to chapter 16, and then we'll look again at, at verse 11. And now compare what, what Saul was doing when he was anointed with what David was doing in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So in contrast to Saul, David is an obedient servant, a man after God's own heart. And he is also one who is a faithful steward over what his father has given to him. Saul is unable to find what belongs to his father. David is faithfully tending to his father's sheep. So prior to being selected and anointed as king, David is already doing the kind of kingly work that God desires from his leader. In fact, David's kingship and the kings of Israel more broadly will later be described as the shepherd of God's people. And also at the conclusion of this passage, when David is anointed in verse 13, we're told that uh, unlike Saul, uh, the Holy Spirit will remain upon and empower David for the rest of his life. 
So all this is to say that the, that the text is telling us this is the true king because this is the kind of person we should be looking for to rule. Israel shouldn't desire someone who is strong and mighty by the nation's standards, but should evaluate him by God's standards. Seeking one who is after God's own heart is obedience and is faithful over what's been entrusted to him. And this is not to say, and some of you may have noticed that David's appearance is described in glowing terms, that he possesses absolutely no uh, positive worldly qualities. Uh, but we need to, to read this and understand this with, with verse 7 reminding us that whatever external qualities David possesses are not the grounds, they're not the reason for him being fit to be king. God looks for a man after his own heart and has chosen a man after his own heart, one who is obedient and faithful to steward what has been put under his leadership. So, uh, friends, let's, let's pause uh, and reflect on, uh, on this, the following question. Are you faithful over what has been entrusted to you? Are you stewarding what has been put under your authority well? Now, some of us uh, may be thinking to ourselves that we are not in any uh, position of authority, that we have nothing that we can steward well, that we have nothing to be faithful with. So to that, I'd like to, to read the following passage from Jonathan Lehman's new book on authority, where he says, you have authority. Everyone does, even if you are a 13-year-old and have, a, and have rule only over your bedroom or the thoughts inside your head. You have dominion over something, some plot of dirt like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you view that plot of dirt as stewardship given by God? Are you using your authority to create life, prosperity, and vitality for others? Or do you look at your domain and say, it's mine, and use it for your own purposes and glory? Then I might also ask whether we say to ourselves that, um, that the amount that's been entrusted to us uh, is so little that we would actually need to be given more in order to start being faithful and obedient. But if we're not faithful over a little, then neither will we be faithful over much. So whether that's uh, more tangible resources such as time or finances, your, your giftings, a position at work, an office, uh, in the church, your place in your household, you have been given a responsibility to cultivate whatever it is that God has entrusted to you for the building up of others and especially his church. And some of us may also be thinking to ourselves that we have so little to contribute to the building of the church. We might say, I'm not a gifted teacher or interpreter of the Bible. I'm an introvert and struggle how to encourage people. I'm uncomfortable around kids. I, I'm not a good musician. I don't have much time. I don't have much money to give. I'm burdened by suffering and will only burden others. I'm burdened by sin and will only burden others. I don't know how to pray as I ought. So we may look at those who are around us and see them as more intelligent than us, as more uh, put together than us, more accomplished than us, more well-versed in the Bible than us, more prayerful than us, as having more resources than us, and be prone to think, how can I possibly contribute in the life of the church? Uh, but friends, this kind of thinking is the same kind of thinking that Israel fell victim to when they sought a king that was strong and mighty by the standards of the nations. Man looks at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks on the hearts. The Lord desires not worldly standards of contribution or accomplishments for the building of his church. Okay, he's not bound by these things. He can build his church with and without them. The Lord desires to build his church through the everyday acts of faithfulness and obedience of his people. So you are faithful when you attend your Sunday morning service each week. Your attendance, your singing, your participation in the word and the ordinances are a gift and help build the church. Your prayers for other members are an act of faithfulness and are a gift to the church. Your willingness to meet with other members to read the word and to pray, even if you struggle to understand it, is an act of faithful stewardship over what you've been given in a gift to the church. So because God desires a heart of obedience and faithfulness over worldly conceptions of strength and might, those whom he chooses to further his kingdom are often the ones that we would not expect. The anointing of David, the humble shepherd boy from the little town of Bethlehem, is an unlikely anointing. He's unlike those who we might first expect to lead God's people and defeat their enemies. But this humble and obedient shepherd king will will prove to be uh, but a faint shadow of his descendants, the true and better shepherd king. This Jesus Christ, the son of David, would receive a humble birth in this town of Bethlehem in a feeding trough and not in a palace. He would come from a lowly hometown and associate himself with the lowly outcast and the downtrodden. And like David, but in a perfect and complete way, he would walk in the power of the Spirit and would be obedient and faithful to all that the Father had given him. And he would be obedient to the most unlikely and the most unexpected place a king can go, where he receives his coronation, not on a throne, but on a cross. So you and I and every person in the world have committed sin against God, the creator of the universe who made us uh, for fellowship with him. Uh, But in sinning and breaking his laws and his commandments, we have separated ourselves from God so that when we live under sin's rule, we do not live under God's favor, but under his wrath and condemnation. But in order to restore our fellowship with him and to restore all of creation, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the true and final obedient king through whom we have forgiveness for our sins and through whom he would establish his eternal kingdom And so this obedient, humble king suffered and died the death that you and I deserve in taking the wrath of God, the penalty for sin upon himself, that you and I might be saved if we turn from our sins and trust in him for our salvation. And friends, this unexpected, scandalous obedience unto death on a cross is the grounds of his resurrection, his exaltation to the Father's right hand, and his inheritance of the eternal throne of David and a kingdom that shall have no end. The unlikely, humble, obedient shepherd King David is only a sign and a foreshadow of the unlikely King Jesus, the sign of whose present reign is the cross. So friends, I invite you, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, come and follow this obedient king and not what appears high and exalted. And so as we are confronted with the, this reality of our crucified Lord and Savior and King, 
Uh, I'd like to, to close by way of application on the following question, and uh, I'd like to pose this question uh, to both Christians and to non-Christians. What do you expect the king of your life to bring you, and how does our crucified king confront this? What do you expect the king of your life to bring you, and how does our crucified king confront this? Another way of stating this is by saying that if you desire flourishing, happiness, wisdom, or success as defined by the world, you will devote your life and follow those things that seem to offer these worldly conceptions of the good. And this reality uh, uh, is what makes our, our uh, crucified king so strange and unexpected. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 talks about how this crucified king is an offense and a stumbling block to the Greeks who seek worldly conceptions of wisdom and, and to the Jews who seek worldly conceptions of power. So based on this, we can say that if you desire wisdom as the world defines it, then the cross will look like folly. If you desire power as the world defines it, then the cross will look like weakness. If you desire freedom or autonomy as the world defines it, then the cross will look like slavery. If you, defire, if you desire success as the world defines it, the cross will look like failure. If you desire life as the world defines it, then the cross will look like death. Following a crucified king confronts our worldly desires because it calls us not simply to, uh, to come and lay them down at the foot of the cross, but to be crucified along with our Lord, to share in his sufferings by submitting to his rule and his commands. My friends, the amazing news of the gospel is that to be crucified with Christ, to suffer with him in your obedience and faithfulness to what you've been entrusted is to share in his resurrection life. To suffer with him is to reign with him. But the astonishing thing about the cross of Christ is not simply that it confronts our desires, but it fulfills them in the way that our hearts were truly made to enjoy them. So if you want wisdom, then come to the cross and taste in the eternal word of God who has created and ordered everything in existence. If you want power, Come to the cross and taste in the mighty arm of the Lord who has defeated the power of death. If you want freedom, come to the cross and be set free from the bondage of the slavery of sin. If you want life, come to the cross and receive life to the full where you can have fellowship with the living God. So make your life, and to the believer here, uh, my call to you is to make your life one where you continually come to the cross to identify with the obedient suffering of our risen and reigning Savior. Come and follow the obedient King and not what appears high and exalted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we have so often followed worldly conceptions of the good and worldly conceptions of flourishing and worldly conceptions of power. We're confronted in your word of the truth of your obedient son, Jesus Christ, who, though he existed eternally as God, humbled himself unto death on a cross, that we might be saved from our sin, and that you might establish your kingdom through him. And I pray that everyone here this morning, whether for the first time in their life or for the first time today, might submit themselves to the rule and reign of this unexpected, suffering, obedient king. 
May we find our joy and glory and nothing else but in the cross of our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.